Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Virtual Viewpoints podcast, produced by the Michigan Virtual Learning Research Institute, the Division of Michigan Virtual. The aim of this podcast is to amplify the voices of those working in K-12 online and blended learning and allow them to tell their stories, sharing perspectives on their work and the continued evolution of our field. In this episode, we're joined by two researchers affiliated with the Digital Media and Learning Research Hub, Mimi Ito from UC Irvine and Justin Reich from MIT. First, we'll get acquainted with their work more generally and learn about the unique research topics they're pursuing at their respective institutions. Then, we talk extensively about a recent publication that they authored that was published through the Hub called From Good Intentions to Real Outcomes, Equity by Design in Learning Technologies. We talk about the process of producing this report, including convening stakeholders from many different organizations involved in education technology and online learning, and the challenges and strategies identified with regard to equitable use of learning technologies in K-12 settings. With that, let's dive right into the interview. All right, welcome everyone. We are here with Mimi Ito, professor at UC Irvine, and Justin Reich, executive director at the Teaching Systems Lab at MIT. Welcome both of you. Thanks for having us. Great. So we're here today specifically to talk about uh, a report that was produced uh, dealing with equity and design and, and learning technologies. But first, I want to give folks an idea of the work that you guys do more generally. Um, so we'll start with Mimi. If you'd like to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about uh, your organization and some of your affiliations and the work that you do. Sure. So I am a cultural anthropologist and a learning scientist, and I'm director of the Connected Learning Lab at UC Irvine. And the Connected Learning Lab is also the steward of the Connected Learning Alliance, which is a network of research educational organizations that are committed to leveraging today's technologies to meet the longstanding goals of progressive education. Uh, the last uh, affiliation that I'll just put out there is I'm also co-founder of Connected Camps, which is a nonprofit uh, that is dedicated to offering online learning experiences for kids and making the internet a more friendly place for young people. And uh, our primary uh, offering that we're focused on right now is online summer camps and after-school programs in the game of Minecraft. So that's just one of the ways in which uh, our program partners and broader network have been trying to put uh, the principles of connected learning into practice. Fantastic. Thanks. And Justin, how about yourself? Yeah, I run a lab at MIT called the Teaching Systems Lab. Um, we're interested in the complex, technology-rich classrooms of the future and the systems that we need for educators to thrive in those settings. So there's a series of online courses that we offer for school leaders on the edX platform, launching innovation in schools and design thinking for leading and learning. And then we have a big initiative that looks into sort of the future of teacher practice spaces, which are games and simulations that let teachers rehearse for and reflect on important decisions in teaching. That's great. So it sounds like some very innovative and awesome work that both of you are doing. We'll be sure at the end of the podcast to mention uh, some websites and different web presences that you guys might like to point people toward to learn more about uh, all that other work more specifically. Uh, but today we, we wanted to focus on a, a specific report that was released, I believe, at the end of October uh, called From Good Intentions to Real Outcomes, Equity by Design and Learning Technologies. Uh, so first, I'm really just interested in how the idea for this report came about and how the, the stakeholders were brought together to try and, and produce something that addresses this topic. 
Um, sure. So I'll, I'll jump in and, you know, Justin, maybe you can fill in, uh, you know, some of the origin story. You know, both Justin and I have been doing research for quite some time on uh, online learning in various forms. I've been focused primarily on the more youth uh, interest-driven forms of online learning and affinity networks around fans and gaming and so on. And, you know, Justin can speak more to his work, but he's obviously been doing a ton of work on how uh, educational institutions have been embracing the new opportunities of open and online forms of learning. Uh, I think both of us, uh, through very different kinds of trajectories, arrived at a similar set of insights that a lot of the promise we saw in the internet providing, you know, open access, peer-to-peer -peer learning, this growing abundance of opportunity for young people to gain access to information, to expertise, specialized social connection, to be producing and sharing online, these really amazing stories you hear about network and digital and demand-driven learning was definitely there, uh, and I was observing it a lot, and, you know, these amazing young people who were, uh, you know, get, gaining reputation online and, you know, learning much more advanced skills because of uh, the access to these open learning opportunities at an ever younger age, but I was also finding that, um, that access, even though it was free and open, was very inequitably distributed, uh, that it was the kids from very tech-savvy kinds of families who are already highly educated, who have superpowers in today's digital network world. And in fact, the gap between uh, the kids who were taking advantage of those opportunities and the kids who were not, even though they may technically have had access to them, uh, but they didn't have the same social and cultural supports, that that gap was really widening, which was very painful to, you know, those of us who are committed to goals of, you know, progressive and equitable opportunity and who believe that internet and open technologies can be a positive force for all young people. Uh, and it really made me realize that it's not simply enough to just have those opportunities out there on the open internet, but we really have to think about how uh, we can engage a really diverse uh, set of young people uh, in their interests, you know, their capacities and communities, and uh, take, um, you know, a more asset-based approach for the young people we really want to serve uh, in uh, gaining access to those opportunities. So I'll hand it over to Justin. Just maybe you can talk a little bit more about the specifics, too, of how we convene folks. Yeah, you know, I would say the kinds of research that I've been doing is very much aligned with that. Maybe one difference is that, you know, Mimi comes at this as a cultural anthropologist. Um, a bunch of my work has been more quantitative in nature. So one of the things that I've been excited about is these online environments produce all kinds of data about who participates and how they participate. Um, you know, uh, it's, we, have, we have new kinds of capacities to track the way that people are learning in different contexts. And, you know, there's all kinds of interesting politics around issues of privacy, issues of, um, you know, who controls data, who is a benefit. But, but one of the things that I hope my research shows is that it really lets us drill down into how different subgroups, how different kinds of kids from different backgrounds have different learning opportunities um, with the same sometimes freely available tools. My, my doctoral research was 
about 10 years ago about how wikis um, and other kinds of peer production tools were used um, by schools serving different populations and found very similar things to what Mimi described, which is that um, you know, kids from places that are more affluent and have more support, they take the same technologies, but they use them in richer ways. Um, you know, they have more, the students have more opportunities for sort of student-centered, you know, kind of production kinds of learning experiences, generating, creating things, collaborating with others, um, where the same tools are used in schools serving low-income families, much more likely to be used as sort of teacher-centered content delivery devices. Um, I did a similar set of work in the last few years around massive open online courses, where again, we found the same patterns of, you know, MOOCs are freely available, but, you know, in the United States, families who register for MOOCs, you know, live in neighborhoods that are a half a standard deviation more affluent um, than typical Americans. And, you know, especially among young people, markers of socioeconomic status, like whether or not your parents have gone to college, you know, significantly predict whether or not you're going to complete these courses. Um, and so, you know, one theme that I've been really interested in is how do we get um, people to recognize um, that, uh, that, that, access is not, that solving access problems, especially by taking things for free and putting them online, is not necessarily going to solve equity problems. Um, and, you know, maybe the last point to make about that piece is just this, this is in some ways not new news. Um, you know, over the last 30 years, there's been all kinds of research, you know, with almost every generation of technology that demonstrates um, the same patterns uh, that, uh, that, you know, in, 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 there's a guy named Paul Atwell, who's a sociologist who wrote an article called The Two Digital Divides. He's talking about a digital divide of access and a digital divide of usage. Um, and the digital divide of usage is that even when everybody has access to the same things, um, Kids from low-income families are more likely to use tools, whatever they are, for drill and practice, for less intellectually rigorous kinds of things, and more affluent students are more likely to use the same tools um, for more creative purposes, for more student-centered, productive purposes with better adult mentorship and guidance. Um, so having put, you know, in a sense, you know, what Mimi and I have tried to do is say, look, we, we now have a lot of research that demonstrates this pattern, um, but it doesn't seem like this this research and this pattern is sort of widely understood by people working in the education technology field. What kinds of things could we do um, to get this knowledge more widely disseminated? And I think one thought we had is that they're actually like, they're not that many people around the United States that have a pretty civic, significant influence over what gets funded, what gets developed, what gets created. You know, there's a handful of foundations, Gates, Jim Zuckerberg, Hewlett, um, a few others that, that philanthropically develop these things. There's only a handful of venture capital firms across the country that are funding most of the work that happens in this area. There are a few big developers, especially as we have this sort of greater and greater concentration of the technology industry. Um, what if we could get all of those folks or representatives from all those different organizations in the room? We could get philanthropists, we could get venture capitalists, we could get developers, we could get researchers, we could get policymakers, we could get people who are um, doing implementation in schools at different levels. Um, and spend a day together, you know, and we sort of ended up jokingly calling them consciousness raising exercises because it's not like we had a specific point or a specific call to action that we necessarily wanted everyone to do in sync afterwards. Instead, what we wanted to have happen was to have a conversation that started with Mimi and I and some of our colleagues doing some level setting saying, look, we've studied these things for a long time now, you know, and one of the big themes, as Mimi puts it, is that um, 
people think that around the digital divide that access is the problem, but but and it is, but it's not the really hard problem. Once you've solved the access problem, there are all these social and cultural exclusions that prevent you know kids from low-income families, from minority groups, from being able to fully participate in all the different online learning opportunities that are out there. Um, and if we don't start from that perspective, we're just going to build stuff that doesn't serve people in the best possible way. Um, and so after some of that research level setting, the next kind of intellectual task is to say, all right, well, what would it look like to do better? Because there are organizations out there that are doing amazing work tackling these problems. Um, and we should highlight some of those successes as well and sort of use those successes to help us think about a set of guiding principles for digital equity. And so we had one of these meetings in New York. We had one of these meetings in San Francisco. We had one of these meetings um, in UC Irvine. We synthesized a bunch of these ideas, and that's where the report came from, sort of our own thinking combined with conversations with about 100 folks um, in these three cities from across the field, trying to ask the question, how do we fulfill the promise of education technology um, to really you know, not only serve all learners, but to disproportionately serve the, the, the learners who are furthest from opportunity? Yeah, I think that's a great um, <laughs> you know, uh, summary of sort of our trajectory and our goals. Uh, you know, the, the one thing that I might add to that is, you know, just that, you know, a lot of what we've been doing with these convenings and the synthesis that we are trying to do with the report is really uh, a good reflection of the effort that we're pursuing with the Connected Learning Alliance more broadly, because we feel that, you know, the, to be really effective in achieving progressive, equitable, student-centered goals, that it really does require building alliances across sectors that aren't always in close conversation with one another. So, you know, uh, obviously Justin and I come from a research background, uh, but we're definitely not in the business of, you know, researchers having all the answers and telling developers uh, what they should do. And what was one of, one of the things that I think was really great about the uh, convening was that we had educators, developers, philanthropists and researchers at the table who are all sort of learning from each other and understanding, you know, gaining a deeper understanding. And we hope that the report reflects that because, you know, one of the things that was really um, important to me was the realization that even though social science, cultural studies have been doing work on issues of inequity and implicit bias and all these things that we know uh, that the reason, like Justin said, that those insights were not making their way into technology development in as robust a way as we would like uh, is as much a fault, I think, on the part of academic research and not engaging, not having, uh, you know, multi-directional dialogue, not understanding the real pain points and constraints that educators and developers are working under. Um, as much as it is, you know, a responsibility of those on the front lines in education and technology development. So uh, figuring out spaces where we can learn from each other and have respectful dialogue uh, that isn't about, you know, shaming people for not reaching their equity goals and, you know, that level setting, but also tone setting, I think was also really important to the work that we were doing. Fantastic. So I think the report is is 
basically laying out, I think, some of the things that Justin addressed in terms of challenges that are identified uh, as, as from the group as a whole, uh, and then ways to try and um, address some of those challenges through different strategies. And so, Justin, you touched a little bit on this notion that uh, even though schools may have the same technology or same access to technology, uh, that they may not be implementing that technology in the same way, and we may end up with disproportionate outcomes or disproportionate methods for serving students based on the way those technologies are implemented. Can you give us some more examples of some of the challenges that, that you identified when it comes to um, the, equit- the equitability of the implementation uh, between schools of different um, incomes, different socioeconomic statuses, and, uh, and some of the strategies that you found were, would be helpful to try and address some of those, those challenges? Sure. So in the school context, I think there are two things. Is one is um, it's really difficult to build a network of different kinds of resources, people, and tools um, that makes online learning possible within schools. Um, you know, think about all the connection points that make it possible for a kid to log into an online site and participate in some kind of learning experience. There have to you have to have bought devices for the kids to use. The devices have to be powered. There needs to be T1 lines with sufficient internet bandwidth coming into the building that, you know, those internet pipelines need to be distributed across wireless network points. Um, the devices need to have batteries at work. They need to be charged. They're, they need to have spaces where kids can get access to the device, where they can be stored safely, whether it's taking them home or other kinds of things. I mean, any one of these pieces can fall apart and then the system doesn't work as well. I had a, I have a distinct memory of being in a school in rural New Hampshire where the teacher had, you know, created this like really sophisticated lesson that was going to have students working collaboratively online, all these kinds of great things, you know, and to get the lesson started, she needed to, you know, and all the computers were working and the wireless was working and they got everybody logged in. She just needed to show students something from the front of the room. And so she plugs in the projector or she, she has the projector. She attached her computer to it. The projector robe was working. She goes to plug in the projector and the outlet socket falls behind the drywall behind the wall. Um, and uh, she's not able to do the lesson in the way that she was expected to because this one sort of sensitive part of the network, which turned out to be like a wall socket that was able to stay in place, failed that day. Um, you know, schools that have more resources are more capable of maintaining those complex networks and having them work reliably so that teachers have the confidence to try more ambitious things. Um, you know, in affluent schools, there's also less pressure around things that have, in some ways, nothing to do with technology, like testing regimes. Um, if you know that most of your students are going to pass their end of your tests and move on appropriately, you just have more freedom to try more interesting things. You can, um, you know, especially given that the testing infrastructure that we have really emphasizes people's ability to recall facts and do basic computation um, and encourages, you know, test prep kinds of strategies that don't require students to do really creative work. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're underneath that test prep re- regime, the most logical thing to do in math class with technology is to have students do drill and practice on problems until they're better prepared for those tests. If you know your kids are going to pass those tests and you have more freedom to say, oh, let's try something with graphing. Let's try something with public communication. Let's solve real world problems with math, those kinds of things. So there's sort of all these structures that have nothing to do with technology that dictate the kinds of learning experiences that people have with technology. Um, I think there's more just trust of students in affluent environments. There's sort of more sense that things go up there. I mean, you could see that a little bit 
in uh, like the LAUSD iPad rollout, um, you know, where, where the second largest school district in the country tried to buy iPads with software for all those students. But, you know, what when an affluent school goes one-to-one -one with iPads, they hand the kids the devices, they give them some guidelines, there's some filtering on it, some things like that, but they basically say, take these devices and think about creative ways that you can make use of them to do more teaching and learning. Whereas in LAUSD, the devices were really thought of as, oh, this is going to be the delivery device for the curriculum. We're going to put textbooks and practice problems on there, and that's what students will do. There's sort of a misunderstanding about, you know, what it signifies to give students a learning technology. You know, it's it, it, the LAUSD, you know, not everyone in the system, but the, certainly the leadership of the system described that as basically like, look at these great content delivery devices we're giving our kids. Whereas opposed to more affluent places, they're saying, you know, look at these tools for creation and creativity um, and student expression that we're giving our students. It's the same device, but it's just talked about in different ways. Um, Mimi might be able to talk about some of the work that um, her colleague Matt Rafflo has done around this, around how different schools who have different expectations of their students end up reproducing those expectations in, in what they ask students to do with technology. Um, so, you know, the way we, we, we don't have any clear ways to address this, you know, the, the, like the report nor our conversations ended with, oh, okay, well, the, you know, there's just these four things we need to do, and if we all do them, we'll, be, we'll, we'll have it taken care of. Rather that what we've sort of asked people to do in our conversations in the report is to start thinking about each part of the life cycle of an education technology initiative from um, how teams are built to create new pro products to how those teams are funded um, by venture capitalists, philanthropists, how things are developed, how they're tested and co-developed in schools, how they're sold and marketed into schools, how they're purchased, how they're integrated, um, what kind of data they generate, how they you know, assess or certify or give feedback to people and to think about at each one of those stages, at each one of those sort of slices of the ed tech product life cycle, what are some strategies that other organizations have tried um, to, you know, to make sure that we focus what we're doing on the students who are furthest from opportunity? What has been most successful around that? You know, many of those examples end up being um, thinking about how the technology operates in some kind of broader community context. Um, so some of my favorite examples of this are there are a number of initiatives they're saying, oh, if we want to build the capacity of young people around technology, actually one of the things that we should think about doing is build the capacity of whole communities around technology. Like if it takes a village to raise a child, then let's think about building the capacity of whole villages rather than just building the capacity of individual kids. Um, so there's a great professor at uh, UC Boulder, Rick Rose Roke, who's done really cool stuff with family creative learning, where you know basically instead of teaching things like Scratch and Makey Makey and other stuff just to kids, teach them to entire families together in these intergenerational learning contexts so that families learn more about each other, kids build capacity, but also when kids get stuck, there's an adult who has some familiarity who's there able to help them more. There's a program in Boston called Tech Goes Home, um, which is trying to get more computers in the hands of families, but instead of just giving away computers, they have parents come into schools to take these sort of mini courses about technology that are taught by teachers in the school. Um, and then there's another computer in the home that gives kids more access. The parents are more competent and confident in using it. They have a stronger connection with the school. They're basically trying to sort of like use technology initiatives to strengthen these community networks. And when those things happen in common, I think it's more likely that those kinds of targeted efforts are gonna 
you know, build capacity among families, um, whereas in a, in a way that disproportionately benefits um, students furthest from opportunity, you know, and would just be sort of less useful, potentially useful, but in some ways less useful to affluent families that already have um, these, these, you know, when, when technology goes into affluent homes and affluent communities, those sort of networks and social structures and expertise are already there. Um, so it's so it's targeting both the um, you know both the needs and opportunities around devices and access and technology, but also around expertise, community, and culture, and those kinds of things. Great, Mimi. Is there anything you'd like to add in that realm? Yeah. So I mean, I think Justin gave a great overview of you know some of the research, and then also the points at which we find promising solutions. Uh, I think the sort of through line of a lot of this is that, you know, we, we really think there needs to be substantial attention paid to social and cultural factors when we are in a context that, you know, with a lot of today's new educational technology, people are, you know, genuinely uh, pursuing these uh, new developments in ways that they're hoping will promote equitable uh, outcomes and are investing a lot in the technology and the technology deployment side, but are coming up against these sort of more institutionalized and sort of subtle kinds of exclusions. And there are a really specific set of strategies that are geared towards those pain points, which are very different from, you know, laying down broadband and, you know, providing uh, basic computing, which is all important. So. We're trying to focus on, you know, something that's very specific to this historical moment where we have a lot of uh, progressive investments coming from the tech sector and philanthropy and so on for new forms of educational technology. Uh, there's a lot of appetite for bringing those into schools, and we're just trying to draw attention to, you know, the need um, and the strategies for addressing these more, um, these softer and often less recognized kinds of barriers. And... A lot of it is, you know, not saying, okay, here's a particular technique or a particular kind of pro uh, product that's going to solve that problem, but really focus much more on the kind of process, a set of guiding principles um, of, you know, getting uh, developers and educators into a context where they're really understanding the unique needs of the communities that they're seeking to serve. So, you know, when we're in a context where people are trying to do the right thing, uh, that there are a lot of subtle issues about identity, about belonging, about um, inclusion that are at play, uh, you know, I think just that awareness of the issue plus, you know, some of the process things we're suggesting, like uh, having closer communication ties between research and practice, bringing social and cultural forms of um, research expertise to the table, bringing in the actual communities and users that you're trying to serve, that a lot of those, uh, the kinds of recommendations that we're making are really around that kind of relationship, coalition, and alliance building. Excellent. Uh, I, I want to go ahead and bring us to a close. Uh, first, I want to thank you both for coming on and talking about the project. Uh, before we wrap up, I want to give both of you an opportunity to point folks toward any websites or social media presences that you might have that they can learn more about the work that you do more generally. 
Great. So um, the Teaching Systems Lab website is tsl.mit.edu, and you can learn more about the online courses that we teach, the practice spaces that we're part of, um, a variety of the different uh, initiatives that we have going on, and then you can follow the work that I do. I'm uh, BJFR on Twitter. And the Connected Learning Alliance, we have uh, a presence on most of the uh, social media and online media uh, that uh, folks are using. We're pretty easy to find on Twitter. Our website is clalliance.net, uh, and we have a lot of reports and publications that uh, address you know, issues that are similar to um, what you see in the report that we talked about today. Uh, there's also just hashtag connected learning if you want to participate in the broader community around connected learning on Twitter. Oh, and I'm Mizuko, M-I-Z-U-K-O on Twitter. Fantastic. Thank you guys both so much for coming and talking about this very important work. We will be sure to point folks toward the report itself, toward all of those websites and uh, social media presences that you mentioned. Uh, and we look forward to uh, reading more of your work as it comes out. Great. Thanks so Great. much. Thanks, Justin. Thanks. Take care. Once again, that was Mimi Ito of UC Irvine and Justin Reich of MIT. This work builds on some valuable research demonstrating the differences in implementation of learning technologies in different K-12 settings. It also provides a valuable framework for practitioners, researchers, and importantly, developers of K-12 learning technologies to begin to address some of the findings borne out in research and work toward more equitable design. We look forward to seeing the impact that this work has in the field going forward. We want to once again thank Mimi and Justin for taking the time to talk with us today, and thank you for listening. We also want to encourage all of you to make use of the resources and opportunities provided by MVLRI and Michigan Virtual. You can check out our website to learn more about all the work that we do as we strive to advance K-12 education through digital learning, research, innovation, policy, and partnerships. Visit us at michiganvirtual.org to see more. We look forward to joining you again soon for another edition of the Virtual Viewpoints podcast. Until then, take care.